And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Mailbag Edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal. We took last week off to rest up for the hot stove season, but we are back with you this week. A bit of a programming note about the Athletic Baseball Show this offseason. We won't be coming to you every day, Monday through Friday, but there will be at least two episodes a week. Many times there'll be three episodes during the week, so definitely Keep checking back for that feed. And then during the winter meetings, we will have full coverage for you during that week. Um, so keep checking us out. Ken, we haven't done this podcast in person, or not in person, via Zoom, I will say, as in person as we get these days, um, in, I guess, a month. Because over the course of October, you were traveling so much that you were kind of recording the answers on your own. We were piecing it together. Um, but we are back uh, live via Zoom and, and doing this together again. It's, it's good to uh, hear your voice. Yeah, it's good to be back with you, Tim. It was a little hairy the way we were doing it before, but uh, we're back in normal situation, normal mode now. Yeah, we are, and we're excited to to get going. Lots of questions this week, obviously geared towards the offseason and not the actual baseball season. Um, Before we get to the actual mailbag, though, uh, there's plenty of topics, obviously, that baseball faces this offseason. Much more positive over the for the most part, compared to a year ago when we were talking about the uh, the upcoming lockout and what that was going to be and the, the dark winter that we had. So when you look at this offseason, what are some of the storylines that you're most interested in? Well, Tim, I'll give you five, and I'm not pretending that this is a complete list. So if you're a fan of Team X and you don't hear your team or player called, it's just because these are my top five. And they're pretty obvious. They're pretty basic. But let's go. Let's start with... The biggest one, which I believe and I think most everyone would agree, is Aaron Judge. He is going to get a lot of money, certainly more than the Yankees offered him at the end of spring training, $213.5 million for seven years. That was a $30.5 million AAV. So one question, obviously, with Judge is how high is it going to go? He is still entering his age 31 season, and that's going to possibly affect things. I believe it will. And the other question is, will the Yankees bring him back? Now, if the Yankees bring him back, it's interesting and certainly we'll want to know what the number is and all that, but it's much more interesting. And I'm just talking about from an observer's standpoint, not from any fan's perspective, but from an observer's standpoint, a journalist's standpoint, if he leaves the Yankees. Because one, the question is, okay, what team is he going to? Is it the Giants or some other club? And two, what then do the Yankees do? Because there is no obvious replacement for Aaron Judge out there. There's no other player like him. The next best outfielder on the free agent market is Brandon Nimmo. So they can take that money that they were going to give Judge and distribute it in any number of ways. Pitching would be one, obviously. 
But that's one thing that stands out to me, Aaron Judge. Number two, similar kind of circumstance, but not quite the same, of course, Jacob deGrom. Now, Jacob deGrom is 34. He is likely going to get a short-term, high-dollar deal. And the question again is, what will it be? I think we can guess the range. Three years, 140, something along those lines, something big along the lines of Scherzer's, if not even higher. But the other question is, just as with Judge, what happens if he leaves the Mets? The Mets already have some pitching concerns. Taiwan Walker is a free agent. Chris Bassett is a free agent. They have to build a rotation back up as it is. Even if they get to Grom, they're going to need more starting pitching. And if he leaves, who does he leave for? What does he get? All these questions come into play as well. So Jacob deGrom, certainly someone that is going to command a lot of attention, a lot of headlines this offseason. Number three, for me, it's the Red Sox. And not because they're necessarily going to be a team that signs Aaron Judge or Jacob deGrom. I don't expect that. What I'm curious about is, do they keep Bogarts? Do they extend Devers? What else do they do coming off what is unquestionably a disappointing season and in an offseason that is a real test for their president of baseball operations, Heim Bloom. They need to, as I've written earlier, kind of get going here. They've been very vocal about how Bogarts is their number one priority. Well, if he's your number one priority, you probably should end up with him if you're the Boston Red Sox. But Bogarts is represented by Scott Boris, as is Carlos Correa. Scott Boris generally does not move quickly in the offseason. There are exceptions to that. That one offseason where he went crazy at the winter meetings with Cole, Rendon, and Strasburg was a notable exception. But that is, to me, something really to watch. What happens with the Red Sox? What happens with Bogarts? Endeavors. Number four, the Texas Rangers. This is the team that has been linked quite a bit to DeGrom, and for good reason. The Texas Rangers, again, are going to spend money. They've signaled that. They've made that clear. Their priority is pitching. Remember, last offseason, they spent more than $500 million on free agents. They got Seager. They got Semyon. A few others as well. John Gray. So they're going to be active. And they've got young pitching coming in the near future. Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker and a couple of other prospects as well. But will they go all out for DeGrom? Will they end up with Carlos Rodon? Will they end up with someone else? That remains to be seen, but we know they're going to be aggressive. We know they want high-end starting pitching. They already have supplemented their rotation with Jake Odorizzi. What else will they do? And finally, number five, and this is a similar kind of situation to the Rangers, though an entirely different team, the Giants. And the reason I say they're similar to the Rangers is because they are the team most linked to Judge, just as the Rangers are the team most linked to DeGrom. The Giants went from 107 wins in 2021 to 81 in 2022. They lost 26 wins. Buster Posey's no longer there. Barry Bonds is long gone. They need, among other things, a face of the franchise, a guy to build around and market around. Aaron Judge somewhat local, he grew up a Giants fan in Northern California, he would be the perfect guy to fulfill that. And also a perfect guy for a team that offensively was kind of blah last year and really needs some pizzazz overall. Now, the Giants can't simply stop with Judge. They need a lot more. But 
he would be certainly a good starting point. And this is a test for them. This is a question of, okay, you had that amazing year in 21 when everything seemingly went right. You had a year in 22, which was kind of the opposite. Everything seemingly went wrong. And now you've got some questions, questions at catcher, at first base, really in number of places around the diamond and the pitching staff. What will the Giants do? So those are five, Tim. I could sit here and talk all day about different teams and what maybe they should do and shouldn't do. But those five stand out to me. Yes, there are others, and I'm sure we will deal with them all in due time. And you mentioned it with as far as Scott Boris goes. But in general, baseball's offseason moves a little bit slower than some of the other sports. So we'll have plenty of time to dive into all of these topics a lot more as we go forward. All right, let's dive into the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved, next time we are here on the mailbag, which actually will be next week, you can call us 646-543-7072. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And the first question is about making the baseball offseason a little more exciting. And we go to Brendan for that one. He says, with the season now over and free agency upon us, I was wondering why baseball hasn't adopted a date where free agency officially opens similarly to other leagues. If the league enacted a free agent freeze until, say, December 15th, but allowed teams to start conversing with free agents at the winter meetings, it would allow the league to market it as a day of excitement like the trade deadline, injecting a bit of life into an offseason typically viewed as boring, as not much happens until around then anyway. Curious if you think this is a good idea or a bad idea. Brendan, actually, free agency does have a start date. It's the day after the World Series ends officially, and then five days after the World Series ends, that's when free agents can start signing with new teams. The problem with free agency in baseball is not the start date. As I said, we have one. The problem is there's no end date. (laughs) And this thing can drag and drag, and we've seen it over and over again in recent years. Now, how do you deal with this? How do you address it? There has been a lot of conversation among executives about how to do this and how to go about it. The question is, just where do you put in a deadline? And where do you make it work? And would agents and club executives be all in favor of this together. I guess the agents wouldn't have a say, but there is concern that they would fight this and who knows what would go on. Now, there have been a couple of ideas thrown around over the years. One would be a trade deadline that would end on the final day of the winter meetings. So you'd have a trade frenzy during the winter meetings, obviously with a deadline in place, the sport doesn't seem to ever move unless there's a deadline. And I'm talking about labor negotiations, free agent negotiations, arbitration negotiations, every negotiation you can think of. And then from there, you start free agency, or at least you continue free agency. You can have free agents sign before then. But then you put a deadline on free agency, let's say just for discussion, January 15th, right? And maybe you shut it down during the holidays and go about it that way. Now, from the standpoint of sanity for everyone involved in this sport, and I'm talking about executives, I'm even talking about reporters, it would be helpful to put some of these deadlines in place. It would perhaps create some time, downtime, that does not exist now, and there are people who would be in favor of it. I am quite sure the union and the agents would fight it, fight the entire concept of a free agent deadline because it would be restrictive 
on the market in their view. That might not be. Maybe it would actually boost the market because it would create a frenzy. But that's my guess, that they wouldn't like that very much. And I don't know how that exactly would work with collective bargaining. Would it need to be collectively bargained? But it's certainly a question that would come up. So I am for kind of creating a more dynamic free agent and trade period. And I am for deadlines. But I just don't hear any momentum along those lines or even much talk about it. The one thing that will always keep baseball's offseason slow, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the lack of a salary cap. Because in the other sports, they know how much money they have to spend, like officially, not just in their accountants' heads. And there's only so many free agents out there. You have this amount of money to spend. So it leads to the situation where teams strike fast to fill up the money that they're going to spend. Whereas in baseball, technically you could spend anything. So then it just drags it all out. Tim, you are a thousand percent right. And I'm glad you mentioned it because I should have. That is the difference between baseball and the other sports that there is no salary cap and there is no reason to set deadlines because there is in theory, at least an infinite amount of salary space. doesn't work like that, but theoretically there's no cap. You can go as high as you want. So that is absolutely part of the dynamic here. I'm not suggesting that we institute a cap to resolve that. If you're going to institute a cap, you need to have other reasons and other people agreeing. But that is one major difference in the dynamic and one major difference why our sport drags the way it does in the offseason. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, moving on. Andrew is up next. He says, I woke up to the news that Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Rafael Palmeiro, and Kurt Schilling had been added to the Contemporary Baseball Era Hall of Fame ballot. I know I'm not alone when I say I'm getting tired of the endless will they or won't they conversation we get thrown into every year with these guys. It brings controversy to an announcement that should be about honoring the game's best players. I have a proposal and would like to hear what you think. 
What if the committee decided to elect all four of them this year? Sure, Twitter would explode, but we could get all the hand-wringing and old men yelling at clouds out of the way all in one go. There aren't any slam dunks on the BBWAA ballot this year, and I could see the Veterans Committee putting a one-year hiatus on electing anyone, allowing these four clowns... Again, this is Andrew, not me calling the clowns. <laughs> to all go in together without raining on another deserving electees parade. Fans and media could protest and boycott the ceremony in July, and a subdued affair would justly penalize Bonds, Clements, Palmero, and Schilling. What do you think, Ken? Andrew, it's an interesting idea, but it's flawed. <laughs> it's flawed for a lot of reasons. One, there is a process in place for electing players to the Hall of Fame. And we're not going to abandon the process. I'm talking now we as in the Hall of Fame and the Baseball Writers Association of America, even though these guys are Veterans Committee type guys. No one should abandon the process simply because a few fans and a few writers, maybe more than a few, are tired of talking about this. You have to do what the process says. You have to follow the process. And these guys are up for election and we'll see if this particular committee, the Today's Era Committee, elects them. That's as simple as that. The other thing is, <laughs> when you talk about a sweeping election involving all four of these guys, you're ignoring the fact that all four of them are quite different in their various transgressions. Now, Bonds and Clemens, for all their many faults and for all that we know about them, they, you can argue, never tested positive, didn't play in an era when there was penalties involving testing, or at least did not get involved in that time. So that's different than Rafael Palmero, who tested positive after penalties were in place and was suspended. And it's a whole lot different than Kurt Schilling, who is not one of the so-called steroid guys, but is someone who has bothered people with his offensive speech and various other things over the years. So you can group them together because, yeah, they all are a pain in the butt and I hate hearing us talk about them, but they're all totally different. So what I would say, Andrew, is that, hey, let's see what the process brings. The arguments are going to be the arguments. Yes, we're all sick of them, but I don't know. Maybe I'm sick of politics. Doesn't mean we don't have elections anymore. So I think we should still have the election. Put it that way. All right. Next question is from Bill. He goes back to the Aaron Judge storyline. He says, with Aaron Judge's impending free agency and rumors that the Dodgers and Giants will be aggressive suitors, how do you think the executives of Major League Baseball will feel about their four marquee players, Judge, Betts, Trout, and Otani, playing on the West Coast, where most of the other baseball markets are unable to see their games without staying up late, obviously. I understand that this is an East Coast bias, but as a Red Sox fan who still cannot believe that Betts was ever traded as much as I would like to still follow West Coast baseball, it is not possible. Trout is an MVP candidate every year, but I have only seen him play a handful of times. Isn't it hard for baseball to grow the game with younger fans when they do not see the best? I hadn't thought about this, and it is a fair question because you're right. Fans on the East Coast rarely see the players on the West Coast play. Now, the new schedule is going to affect that somewhat, right? Because each team will be playing each other team at some point during the year. That's the way it's going to work. At the same time, the concern is, I guess, reasonable to at least discuss. Now, these things are cyclical. I don't know that MLB would be worried about it. Probably MLB prefers its best players to be scattered all over the country to different markets and different teams. That's not realistic as we know, right? Jose Ramirez plays in Cleveland 
That's great for the game because that's a small market team that kept its star. But we do know that the big money, the highest payrolls are generally on the coasts. Now, you didn't mention Juan Soto in that group. He's another guy who's on the West Coast now. But there are still stars on the East Coast with East Coast teams. Max Scherzer, Bryce Harper, JT Realmuto, Rafael Devers, Garrett Cole. I can go on. So I don't know that it's that much of a concern. And frankly, all of this stuff creates interest, period. And if the players are on the West Coast, yeah, you might not see them as often, even with the new schedule. But... I just don't see it being something that MLB would be actively worried about. Who knows what might happen in the future? Maybe Soto goes back to the East Coast as a free agent in a couple of years. So Otani's another one. He's a free agent after this year. He's not necessarily guaranteed to stay in Anaheim. In fact, he's not guaranteed at all to stay in Anaheim. So I wouldn't worry so much about it, but I do appreciate the point in the question. I think the bigger concern is Trout and Otani never playing in the postseason as opposed to them playing on the West Coast. But we'll see if the Angels can get that figured out as well. Franklin says, when it comes to hiring managers, my easiest point of comparison is football, where teams generally pick a coach with an offensive or defensive background to complement the type of team they're trying to build. So my question is, do MLB teams tend to consider binary factors like that when they're hiring managers? I could see a world where, say, a pitching versus hitting fielding background might interest teams in different ways. In a similar vein, are there other factors like experience that come into play? Recently, we've seen teams hire young, recently retired players like Aaron Boone, whereas others go with older, more experienced picks like Dusty Baker. Both have had success, but do teams have a sense that one manager profile might fit their team like a football team would consider it? Teams definitely look at it that way. Not so much from a positional standpoint, though that can come into play, but different managers and different profiles fit different clubs. And each time a managerial change takes place, you generally see a team go the other way. So if you have, for instance, in Texas, Chris Woodward, a guy not perceived by the Rangers ultimately to be a strong enough personality, to be a dynamic enough leader, well, then you go get Bruce Bochy, right? A veteran, a guy who has done it, unlike Woodward, and you take another direction. It's not always true in every case, but often that is the way things go. So teams look at it from that perspective, but there's not one thing they're looking for necessarily. And from a positional standpoint, catchers often make good managers, Why? Because they have a macro view of the game, a wide lens in which they view the game. Whereas you rarely see pitchers and pitching coaches succeed as managers. It's not out of the question, but it doesn't happen all that often. And they have more of a micro view of the world, right? They are pitching centric. So that's one thing that comes into play. But as far as one profile specific, no. But I do think that pendulum swing that I described That is something that we see all the time, and it is not unusual. The Mets went from Luis Rojas, a very inexperienced manager, to Buck Showalter, an experienced manager. The Marlins, the opposite. They're going from Don Mattingly, a guy who was an ultimate veteran manager, to Skip Schumacher, who has never managed, has been a coach in San Diego and St. Louis, and is not that far removed from his active days as a player. And they believe, perhaps... 
that he can relate better to today's players. Not that they had a problem with Mattingly. Mattingly relates to everyone. But maybe Skip Schumacher gives them that little bit of an edge that they didn't have before. All right, moving on to another team-specific question. This one from Bill, Rangers fan here, and already looking to next year. Fans of the team have seen a lot of losing these past six seasons, and the owner, Ray Davis, has been criticized for not spending enough on payroll. Last year, though, he opened up the checkbook for Seeger, Simeon, and John Gray, but the team has been historically bad at drafting and developing players. That could change with some young players soon, particularly Josh Young. But that remains to be seen. Is it fair for Davis to tell the front office that it's their turn to add to the talent on the field? You can't build a squad strictly through free agency, or does he have to keep spending to get a return on his previous investments on the field? I would say the answer for the Rangers and for every other club is both. You have to get talent from outside sources, free agency and trades. You have to get talent that you develop on your own, homegrown talent through the draft, through international signings of amateurs, etc. So the Rangers are not unlike any other team. Now, what they're trying to do is accelerate their return to prominence by spending. But at the same time, they are also working hard on their farm system, which, by the way, is ranked sixth by Baseball America in their latest rankings, their midseason organizational rankings. Sixth is pretty good. And they've got five players in the top 100 in Baseball America, And that doesn't include Kumar Rocker, who was their top draft choice this year, number three overall. And it doesn't include Brock Porter, who went in the fourth round. They gave him a record bonus for a fourth rounder, high school pitcher, $3.7 million. They saved some money with Rocker, had the money left for Porter. So from that perspective, they're coming with the young talent. They're trying to do some more things, and they believe that they will. The question is, Can they spend their way back into contention while at the same time develop players to ultimately balance their payroll? And this is the trick, the thing that every team does. I wrote about it for Monday, how the Yankees and Dodgers are on the verge now of mixing in some young talent that would enable them to perhaps not pursue such expensive solutions. So this is where the Rangers are. It's actually in a promising spot considering that they have some pieces in place. They're going to acquire some more, I'm quite certain. And they've got Jack Leiter and Josh Young and all these other guys coming. And they should be ultimately, if everything works, in a pretty good spot. Always comes down to if everything works. Those prospects have to pan out. Uh, Hillel says, greetings from Israel. The Gold Glove Awards came out, I believe, on Tuesday. This is the first time I've ever seen them come out before the playoffs ended. Why not wait until the season is over when we're all missing baseball? Does this have anything to do with the lockout? It does not, Hillel. And I will answer this question by saying that this is decided by Rawlings, who runs the Gold Gloves, when they want to announce and have their awards out there. Now, this year, Rawlings and ESPN did their Gold Glove show live from the World Series on November 1st. And the three players at the World Series who were Gold Gloves, it was Tucker, Pena, and Real Muto. They all participated in appearances. Fox showed them during the broadcast. It got some attention, although, yes, it was during Game 3 of the World Series. Now, Rawlings then had their dinner on Friday night, and that's when they announced the Platinum Glove winners, the Platinum Award winners for this season. And to me, that was a little weird, too, because it's Friday night, and nobody's really paying attention. But 
From what I understand, it was a great night. A lot of players were there. Kyle Tucker, Jeremy Pena, Arenado, Andres Jimenez, DJ LeMahieu, Max Free, Dansby Swanson, Jose Trevino. All these guys were there, including some former players like Andre Dawson, Ozzy Smith. So it was a good night. And I guess with these kinds of things, there's never a perfect time. Obviously, this is the week of the BBWAA Awards. It's a good week for those because there's not a lot going on yet with free agency. There's some activity, of course. So it's never going to be ideal, but that is the explanation for why the timing was what it was this year. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Yeah, hey, try something new, right? Doug Glanville, of course, from Starkville on our feed here was uh, part of that um, show for ESPN, uh, the unveiling of the gold gloves. Uh, all right, next question is from Alex. He says, seeing that catchers are considered some of the smartest players on the field and work in tandem with their pitchers and coaches to develop strategies that exploit hitter weaknesses and psychology, why is it that catchers are not often among the best hitters? I'm thinking in particular, particular Lee, about Martin Maldonado. John Smoltz, Joe Davis, and pretty much anyone calling an Astros game waxes poetic about Maldonado's defensive and strategical skills, but why is he unable to reverse those skills and consistently take advantage of the pitchers throwing against him and thus have outstanding OBP and war stats? I realize that JT Realmuto is actually among the best on his team offensively and was top 30 in the league, so maybe my question is misguided. Alex, the answer is pretty simple. Hitting is hard. And just because Martin Maldonado is a great defensive catcher, and he is, doesn't mean that he has the skills to hit. He might be smart enough to figure out what he's seeing, but when you're seeing, I don't know, 98 on the black and then 95-mile-an-hour sliders and 88-mile-an-hour change-ups and guys coming out of the bullpen throwing 100, uh, it's a bit of a challenge. And while we sit in the stands and in the press box and we say, hey, how come this guy can't hit? What's the problem here? That's the reality that this is a really difficult skill to master. Of course, Ted Williams called it the toughest thing to do in all of sports. And that is why you often see this issue. Now, JT Realmuto is obviously an exception. There have been many other exceptions. There are some in the game today. Sean Murphy is a good one, trade candidate. But so much attention to detail is required of catchers on the defensive side. There's so much that they have to do. That probably contributes to it as well. But the overriding answer, again, is hitting is hard, man. And we have to appreciate that as fans. We actually have to appreciate, in general, as Tim Kirchner has always said, he said this to me in 1987 when I first started covering the Orioles with him, actually against him. He was the morning sun in Baltimore. I was the evening sun. 
He said, you have to understand this sport is extremely difficult to play. And if you look at the games and you look at the players and understand it from that perspective, take that perspective, it kind of gives you a better understanding and patience level for what you're seeing. I think Davis and Smoltz actually told the story during the World Series of like the the long cross-country flight where the whole team's yes. asleep except Maldonado, who's on his tablet in the corner studying the next day's uh, hitters and getting ready for his pitchers. That takes a toll on what you're going to do in the batter's box. No doubt. No doubt. And Martin Maldonado is brilliant at what he does. He's amazing at it. And at times he contributes offensively too. But again, you're asking for the perfect player. We all, in all of our careers, have different strengths and weaknesses. Martin Maldonado's lack of hitting talent is just part of who he is. The other side is what makes him a great major league player. All right, great questions this week. We'll be coming to you throughout the offseason um, about every other week with the mailbag, although it's not exactly on that cadence. If you want to get involved in the next one, you can call us 646-543-7072. The email address, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. One more episode on the feed this week, the 3-0 show coming at you on Thursday with DVR, Eno, and Britt. They'll have the latest news from the hot stove with their typical analytical spin on it. Uh, it's Time to start thinking about gift ideas, and you can join The Athletic. Gift The Athletic $1 a month for six months to get all the great writing going on. No better time than right now. So check that out at theathletic.com slash baseball show. All right, Ken, I said you rested. I know you didn't actually rest last week, but I hope you're ready to go and energize for this hot stove season. I'll do my best, Tim. <laughs> That's all I can say. <laughs> Thanks a all lot. All right, we'll, we'll talk to everybody again next time.